0: Hello and welcome to 4th Estate, a show about journalism. We're coming to you from Tourist in Sydney on Gadigal lands, right across Australia on the Community Radio Network and directly to your device across the globe via podcast. I'm Anthony Dockrell. The referendum result last Saturday was a crushing result for the Yes campaign. The final result in the voice referendum had yes with 39.2% of the vote and no with 60.8%. The final result in macro terms matches the result for acknowledgement in the preamble to the Constitution back in 1999. Many on the no side would view the result as a return to the status quo, but for some on the yes side, the result poses a fundamental rejection of reconciliation, and perhaps even an existential rejection. So, did the media do its job, and are there any lessons for it to learn from the referendum? To help us with all of this, we are joined by Mark Kenny, a former Fairfax journalist and now professor at Australian National University. Mark Kenny, welcome to Forth Estate.
1: Thank you very much, Anthony. A pleasure to be here.
0: Look, before we turn to the media's performance, I'd like to unpack the result and get your take on the political implications that flow from Saturday. So, Mark, I, I, I spoke to a lot of people who voted yes since Saturday, and they were all kind of mentally prepared for, the, for no victory, but the emphatic way the nation closed the door on The Voice was to them shocking. Were you shocked on Saturday night?
1: Yes, I was shocked. Look, as you say, the polling data that, that was sort of flooding the marketplace almost, flooding the electoral debate in the lead up to the to, to polling day itself. Was all pointing in one direction. Uh, it wasn't just uh, one poll. It was pretty much all the polls, and the aggregated uh, result of all of those polls did point to a defeat. That said, there were some signs, some kind of glimmers of hope about a late recovery in the Yes camp, and uh, you know some sort of uh, improvement possibly that might not have been picked up by the uh, surveys of public opinion and the like. This might not have, I don't think too many realists thought this was going to lead to a reversal of fortune and the referendum passing, but at least might have led to a more respectable result, perhaps even a majority of votes, if not a majority of states. Uh, but as it happened, it was nowhere near that. Uh, in fact, the polls had been both correct and had probably underestimated the extent to which, which Australians abandoned the uh, the whole proposition.
0: The statement from the heart ends with this, in 1967 we were counted, in 2017 we seek to be heard, we leave base camp and start our trek across the vast country, we invite you to walk with us in a movement of the Australian people for a better future. After Saturday, does it feel like that invitation was not just rejected but the entire enterprise has now nowhere to go? I'm thinking about the Republic referendum basically put that issue into the freezer for two decades. Could something similar happen here with reconciliation?
1: I think it could. I think what we've seen there, I mean, the common thing between both of those uh, referendums is that constitutional change is very difficult. Uh, So at one level we could analyse this and say, well, Australians aren't against their First Nations peoples or they aren't against reconciliation, they aren't even necessarily against recognition in the constitution as a, as a sort of a symbolic act. But what they were against was the proposition that was put forward, which, which was uh, the voice to Parliament, which of course was represented as being very significant and having unknown implications and, and all kinds of other wild things that were said about it or that were coursing around in, um, in social media about it. Uh, so uh, it depends how you look at it. But I think the, the takeout from a lot of Indigenous people will be that they asked a question uh, a question that invited uh, a, a generosity of spirit, that showed a generosity of spirit, but invited it also from uh, the wider Australian population. And I, I said wider there, but I could have said whiter as well, I suppose both would work. And what they got was an emphatic rejection. And to me, that is a a big setback for reconciliation generally, for the establishment of a of a just and reasonable settlement with the First Nations of this country. And it, it it is hard to imagine much optimism in this space in terms of future future improvements, future significant developments. I know there's a lot of politicians wandering around at the moment saying that now the hard work begins on 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 closing the gap and and on you know the reconciliation task, however defined. And I notice that very often that's not very well defined. But really, this is, I think, this is either wishful thinking or simply disingenuous on the part of people who, in some cases, campaigned very vociferously against the voice. I mean, bear in mind, as you read out the Uluru statement, there the the desire of Aboriginal Australia was for meaningful recognition as a way of closing the gap. So to have all of these people say, "Well, we," you know. We've, yes, sure, we've had decades of spending money in these areas and they haven't seemed to turn around all, all these areas of Aboriginal disadvantage, but now we're going to roll up our sleeves and do it. Well, hang on, you were just offered a, a, a way that in the best judgment of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Australians was a material way towards closing the gap, better listening, better targeted policies government's understanding, understanding what the experience was on the ground, the diverse experience of First Australians on the ground all around the country via a, a permanent mechanism, and you rejected it as a matter of principle and you rejected it very emphatically. And so to be talking about, you know, the hard work now beginning, yeah, there is a lot of hard work to be to be done here, but there's a lot of bad faith, I think, that's been shown by the Australian people and it's going to be hard to turn around.
0: Marshall Langton has said that reconciliation is dead. It's not our place here to obviously say whether reconciliation is dead. But can I put this question to you? Is it dead politically?
1: Well, I suppose that goes a little bit to your previous question as well, in terms of the, the, the sort of parallel or the similarity with uh, the Republic. Um, you know, the, the, the idea that uh, it might come back, in the case of the Republic, that it might come back in a few years' time, which was, in voters' minds in 1999 when they had the, the official minimalist position and then this sort of theoretical possibility of, of, of you know, a direct election of a head of state. We know that was just a, just a device, really, for dividing the Republican camp. It worked perfectly, and that issue has not come back. And so whether this issue now is dead politically or not, I, I think, you know, depends a little bit on the way each side behaves, and on what form reconciliation could take. But in terms of political, if we think about it in terms of the way you frame that question, is it dead politically? It's hard to see politicians on either side of the fence showing much courage in this space in the foreseeable future. This has just been litigated in the highest court there is, which is the court of public opinion by by way of a referendum, a very formalized and, and difficult process over an extended period. And the result was a, a very decisive no. And the government, I think, is somewhat shell-shocked by it. I think Aboriginal Australians are are, are shocked and 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 dejected by it, understandably. And I would imagine that it, it will be some time before we see anything material happen, and probably much longer again before we see anything actually ambitious happen.
0: If you look at the history of referendums in this country, there's only eight that have, got, have there's only eight that have got up. But if you look at referendums that are initiated by the Labor Party, it's an even starker message. They've only ever got one through. Once the opposition made their position clear and the trends and the polls were also becoming clear, should the referendum have gone ahead?
1: It's pretty easy to say now what the answer to that question is, because it's a very clear no. Whether it was easy to see at the time is a consideration we have to have, I think. It is, we know how it ended. It ended very badly. It ended in, you know, with a reversal really of the position that started out in now, the polls suggested there was somewhere around six, sixty percent. I was going to say six in ten or six and a half out of ten people were pro pro voice or or sort of favourably disposed towards uh, the idea, such as it was in their mind. But it wasn't very well defined. It was very much an abstract. And at the time, <clears throat> excuse me, there wasn't there wasn't a referendum. You know, just around the corner. Over the period of of seventeen months or so between when Anthony Albanese announced it on election night to when it happened those p- positions got effectively reversed so it was a terrible campaign it it never really reached the people it needed to reach the people in the inner cities the people with high levels of education the people who were you know very strongly disposed towards it they they remained in the yes camp but others bled away and became no votes and we know as as you said in your question you know that the history of referendums is difficult labor's only ever successfully proposed one what can we take from that i think we can take from that the obvious thing that bipartisanship is absolutely crucial there haven't been any that haven't enjoyed bipartisan support that have got up and there's only been one uh, b- b- proposed by a labor party which tends to suggest it's a pretty small sample size but tends to suggest that australians take some comfort in in a referendum proposition having the support of the conservative side of politics because Australians show great caution when it comes to changing the constitution so it may not be that it's just bipartisanship you need it may be that the bipartisanship needs to be in the form of reasonably strong and and ideally sponsoring support from the conservative side of politics certainly the government didn't take those lessons into account when I asked uh, MPs about this, uh, and, and I know some of my colleagues uh, had similar sorts of conversations uh, as the year progressed and as it looked like uh, public support was draining away, and I asked them about whether the this referendum was doomed to failure and whether it ought to be pulled or not, the standard answer was that Australia isn't the Australia of previous referendums. There's been generational change. People are much more enlightened about the race question, about uh, relations with First Nations people. There's a much stronger and more comprehensive embrace of First Nations culture. Young people have a uh, much more enlightened view. There are all kinds of things that were said about it, including that the loyalty to the old parties, to the major parties, had also considerably diminished or broken down. We see that in elections. And that all these things add up added up to the idea that Australians could easily support this and wouldn't be constrained to to oppose it or, or directed to oppose it simply because one side of politics wasn't supporting it. Well, those that, they were nice ideas. They all turned out to be wrong.
0: Look, one of the most striking moments for me was on Saturday night when Peter Dutton spoke after the no campaign had claimed victory. What struck me was he, he didn't hold out an olive branch to the Aboriginal community. He didn't try to put a soothing balm on a new wound that many Aboriginal people were feeling across the country. From my point of view, he twisted the knife. He, he doubled down on a call for a Royal Commission into Child Sexual Abuse in Indigenous communities and for an audit on spending. Was The Voice the moment where Australian politics went Trump
1: I think it I think it probably was if you I think history will show that it's a bold call in the sense because uh, it's not for me to defi- decide what uh, historians will think 10 or 20 years from now and beyond but uh, my suspicion is that this was a moment when Australian politics showed a number of those trumpian tendencies or or characteristics particularly the inversion of facts and the absolute tidal wave, really, of extraneous negative information, you know, the, the the famous Breitbart quote from Steve Bannon, flooding the zone with shit. Well, there was a lot of that that went on in this referendum. It is the first referendum that has happened in the social media age. That was another thing that hadn't been taken into account by the advocates of this of this drawn-out campaign. They, they, they just simply hadn't factored in how social media could become such a strong negative. They had this very optimistic view that, you know, for all the reasons I said before, that Australia was a different country now and that this would there would be this sort of, you know, general upwelling of of positive sentiment about stepping forward in the manner of that's that's invited in the Uluru Statement from the Heart. But in fact what we saw was you know, something closer to, to Ghostbusters 2 where negativity brought up all kinds of sludge from the sewers and it was circulating around in the public public space in a very negative way and it really infected the debate and uh, Peter Dutton was very happy to be part of that, to be a sort of a, a, a conductor and facilitator of, of these kinds of things and I think the, the, the principal one, I've written about this a couple of times through the, through the process, Because it used to really sort of infuriate me as I watched it happen, was what I called the Trumpian inversion of taking a very, very partisan oppositional position on the voice and then saying that the reason you're not supporting the voice is because it's divisive. In other words, he created the division and then used the fact of the division as a a supposedly respectable argument for. For not supporting it, now the voice was put forward to unite Australia. You can see that in the words of the Uluru statement that you mentioned before. It's about healing a, a, a fact, not 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 a not a fiction, not a feeling, but a fact of dispossession of Aboriginal people, of terra nullius, of the, the absence of any recognition of prior ownership. The absence of any recompense and the unwillingness to confront the intergenerational sequelae of that of that original sin, and addressing it was a was a was an invitation to the broader Australia to confront that and to walk together towards a a more united future where Aboriginal people got a better deal, got given the respect of the acknowledgement of their prior ownership, and and, and invited us to write our future history together. It was a, it was an act of unity, and it was described as divisive, and that became a trope that ran right through uh, the entire campaign period. Certainly in twenty twenty three, once Dutton had declared his uh, his opposition to it, and it was not very well inter- interrogated. Uh, he was able to get away with this on an ongoing basis, and. Uh, exit polls and and subsequent survey data will show, uh, as I'm told, that the fact of the voice or the, the the claim that the voice was divisive was a perhaps the leading criticism that no voters had of the proposition.
0: In 2016, America's media was not ready for Trump and was not ready for the tactics that we've just been talking about. It's it's fairly clear that our media wasn't ready for that as well because. This message about how the voice was divisive was relayed across all media platforms.
1: It was. It was. It, it, it was universal. It, it it came from everywhere. It was accepted almost as a as a as a given after a period of time. And and the thing is, it sort of ended up being true. Of course, it it was divisive in the sense that there felt like there was a lot of division around. I suspect. I can't know this for sure, but I suspect that a number of people went into the ballot box without any great knowledge of what the voice proposal was. This is always the case with referendums, and it would have been the case here. You know, that, that We heard reports of people still not, barely knowing there was a referendum going on, right up to, to polling day. And I suspect a number of people will have gone into the polling booth and will have voted no, and if pushed to explain why, it would have been that there was an argument about it, that there was a, a raucous public disagreement over it. And the disagreement itself was corrosive to the idea of of voting yes, of, of making a change to the constitution. All you had to know was that there were a lot of people who disagreed with it. And you probably thought, well, yeah, this doesn't seem right to me. I'm not going to vote for it. That's the way the psychology of, of, of undecideds can work in things like referendums. And it's an, one of those ironies that, Compulsory voting probably favours, probably helps reform parties or left-leaning parties in general elections. Certainly doesn't harm them. Uh, but in the case of of a referendum, where it's often an arcane, quite abstract idea to amend the constitution, compulsory voting probably works fairly decisively in favour of the, the the conservative side or the, of the no case, because for the same reason I just mentioned, people. If they don't really understand it, they they tend to be against it, and that's why that that slogan that that Tony Abbott's used, that Peter Dutton used, that was used, that was sort of endemic throughout messaging in this referendum campaign. If you don't know, vote no. That's why it was so pervasive and so effective because there would have been a lot of people that say, yeah, that makes sense to me. I don't really know. I've heard, a, I've heard a lot of lot of you know differing opinions about it, but I'm not sure myself. So I'm voting no.
0: Okay, well, let's turn to our media's performance during the Voice campaign. Once there was no bipartisan support for the Voice, the campaign was destined to be heavily contested and ensured a, a political battle. So the media was duty-bound to cover both sides of the debate. Did they do a good job?
1: I don't think they did. Uh, as, as a general statement, I think media didn't really adjust to the complexities of this to the actual characteristics of the campaign on the ground and of course a lot of that campaign was happening away from mainstream media perhaps the, the dominant part of it arguably was happening away from mainstream media on social media and and on, on on the internet generally and i think media had you know intentions to be seen as fair there was a particularly thing about the national broadcaster the abc you know there's always that sort of conservative claim that the ABC leans left, and therefore, you know, was they're always on the lookout for signs that the ABC was, was pro-yes. The ABC was awake to this very early on, and so it very rigidly policed this idea of equal broadcast time for yes and no. Now, on the face of it, that sounds like a, a, a pretty good thing for journalists to do for, and for broadcasters for news outlets to do because, after all, they're not meant to be campaigning themselves. They're meant to be reporting on the campaign and, and, and therefore, well, what could be fairer than equal broadcast time? The trouble comes when you have a simple proposition that is wildly misrepresented in a whole range of ways and which has people exaggerating and making false claims. Do you give equal, you know, that's, that's sort of broadly what most of the no campaign was made up of, do you give equal time to that stuff? Because that doesn't make for a fair election. In other words, the equal time allocation, in my view, was, was an easy way for appearing fair, but I don't think The Voice got a fair hearing in most mainstream media as a result of, of media's attempt to, to, to platform people who were, in many cases, speaking
0: rank nonsense. Well, it's not controversial to say there was a number of distortions and lies or just dubious assertions, which you've just indicated during, you know, this will happen during the campaign. One of, one that comes to mind was when Jacinta Pichenda Price said colonization has been a net benefit for Aboriginal people. And she went on to say that there was no ongoing negative impacts of colonization. How should the media have covered such a statement?
1: Well, I know that came from a question from the media at the National Press Club. I witnessed it, and so I I think it was a legitimate question to ask. It was a surprising answer coming from a First Nations leader, and therefore it it certainly got a lot of news coverage. I think that it it could have been responded to with, with, with deeper reaction from neutral sources, from historians, for example, from the historical record. And from First Nations people around the country who could forced removal of loss of land, of treatment ill treatment by the police, of of being marginalized, of having children taken away, of being incarcerated at far greater rates than the rest of the population. The poverty and and the marginalization, the second classing of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander citizens in Australia. It could have been very, very strongly contested, but I suppose this was really in the last few weeks of the campaign and it didn't really it didn't really get that kind of depth of coverage. I, I do think that the initial coverage was probably fine, but it, the, my, my sort of criticism of that is is it almost predates that question, and that is that I think it could have been throughout the whole period, not just the campaign period, but throughout the whole year there could have been more extensive interrogation of of historical sources and of historians who had specialized in this area, you know, talking and explaining the truth about what happened in Australia's history, how Australia was formed, how what happened with with colonization, with the arrival of the First Fleet, and what that actually meant, the massacres, the things, you know, the stuff that's uh, been referred to as the Great Australian Silence, the the, the periods through which many people, including myself, were educated at schools not to know anything about Aboriginal Australia, not to really understand uh, Aboriginal Australia at all, in except, except in as much as we heard about Skirmishes that occurred between native Australians and our, uh, you know, our great and victorious uh, explorers who opened up the land. So I think, you know, what Nampajimpa Price said, it was surprising. It got some headlines, but it then sort of it sort of went away. But there were many other things that happened during the yeah. statements that were made during the course of the referendum. You know, it began going right back to 2017 with, you know, claiming it would be a third chamber of parliament that. That persisted in some form or another. The words themselves were a bit different, but that persisted as an idea that it would have some sort of you know, much bigger power than was being stated by proponents of the Yes case, that it was a land grab and that would result in people losing their land and the country going broke, uh, having to buy back land and so forth, that it conferred special rights on Aboriginal people, which it did not that it created two classes of Australians. Well, I think economically, socially, and historically, we already had two classes. It was actually about levelling up, really. Let's put it in the language of of British politics. It was about levelling up rather than creating two two classes of Australians. As I say, dividing Australians by race. Well, race was already in the constitution. The government already had the power to make uh, special laws in relation to Aboriginal people. And, you know, and so it went on. And I think most of those things were were allowed to flow around, as I say, a good deal of it on 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 social media rather than mainstream media. But mainstream media could have actually taken the view that because of what was coursing around on the internet, that it had a greater responsibility to illuminate those historical facts and to and to and to counter them by virtue of uh, deeper analysis. But you just didn't see much of it.
0: And look, the Yes campaign's own polling found something like 40% of Australians thought Aboriginal people were not disadvantaged. So statements like prices did resonate in the public. Oh, yeah, I think it did. and, And even if it was quickly shown to be untrue, is it the media's role to flatly report the news or should it call out lies at the source?
1: Well, my view is that you should, you should, your bias should be towards facts. And where people say things that are untrue or that are contestable and that are highly contested by credible sources, then that should be reported as well. And that should be, I mean, you know, the, the, the country's future was at stake, and I think therefore it, it, it behooved media to to interrogate the things that are being said, to understand the motives for why they're being said. I mean. Political journalists, for example, are constantly told things by media advisers, by politicians themselves. They're constantly spun versions of facts or versions of stories, you know, circumstances, and they develop the well, they should develop the the faculty for understanding, for being suspicious about motive in terms of those interpretations, and for understanding that there are alternative positions that need to be examined. You know, politicians need to be held to account. Well, a lot of the No case was run by politicians, people who were professional, professional political operatives, and when they said things, that those things were able to be, inter- you know, interrogated, examined, and deconstructed if necessary, refuted if that's what the evidence suggested. You're right. I think the the, the Jimpa Price comments about colonisation. They they probably did have quite a, a, a strong effect out there in Boereland because a lot of people started off with that view, and he was a, a an Aboriginal person telling them they're right, telling them don't worry, you've nothing to, your country has nothing to atone for. There, there is no intergenerational results from from these things. We don't ever have to actually admit that people rolled up, herded Aboriginal people onto missions chained them up, treated them badly, murdered some of them, raped some of them, took their children, left them with diseases and then left them with nothing and then decided that for for the rest of time, none of that would ever be talked about.
0: One of the key moments in the campaign was when the story broke that Marcia Langton had accused no voters of being racist. The story was walked back pretty quickly, but not before it caused a lot of damage and a great deal of lost momentum for the S side. Was this for you a key moment and, and how do you think the media performed in this story?
1: I'm not so sure it was a key moment. It was a certainly a key moment in media coverage of the story and it probably got it probably got a fair bit of airing on social media. I'm less less authoritative on, on that in this particular instance. But I think it spoke to a couple of things. It spoke to the fact that race was an elevated idea, an elevated pejorative term in this campaign on both sides Uh, and i remember writing very early on in fact you know not long after the election i think uh so you know certainly in 2022 rather than 2023 that uh, yes campaigners needed to avoid the temptation to regard no campaigners as racist or to be using that term because the emphasis must be on respectful dialogue and convincing people to come across to the yes case—that that 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 should be the campaign objective. Not insulting them, not you know, kind of talking about them as a basket of deplorables, or 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 being you know, troglodyte, racist, or whatever. That said, it, it it emerged anyway on both sides, and initially there was a lot of discussion on social media that no campaigners were being called racists by yes campaigners. I saw very little evidence that no campaigners were being called racist by Yes campaigners but they were denying it anyway they were denying it vociferously almost as a political tactic and uh, that sort of uh, that sort of flowed around for a while and then it, you know it seemed to me that there was quite a lot after a while it was true that there was quite a lot of racist material going on there was there were no campaigners people who were pro no I should say rather than necessarily no campaigners in a formal sense but people who were against the voice on social media and there were some appalling things that were being said some appalling memes that were out there statements offensive wording and everything else so there was a there was a there was a lot of racism that started to course around and we had this kind of elevation of this term where it you know it became very serious to talk about race well one this thing had never been about race it was about indigeneity it was about place not race it was about the people who were here first and some sort of recognition of the fact that their circumstances were unique and were uniquely uniquely prejudiced by the fact that white australia came here and set up a political system that completely ignored them and marginalized them a political and economic system and that Two, two and a half centuries nearly later, the the results of that are measurable in so many different ways. That's not about race. That's about place. It's about who was here first and what effect it had and whether we were going to be truthful about it. So we then roll forward to the the, the Marcia Langton moment where the, 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 the original story, I think, ran in The Australian that Marcia Langton had slurred no voters as racist and stupid. Then the Sydney Morning Herald listened to... A, a tape of the speech at which this was alleged to have been said, and and revealed that no, in fact, she hadn't said that at all. What she'd been talking about was the campaign. That if you look under the surface of a number of their messaging, you know, you, you don't have to look far before you find that the arguments are either racist or just plain stupid. She wasn't slurring no voters; she was having a crack at the campaign. Then the Herald, in the way it explained that the next day, had a headline like, I think it was Langton denies slurring no voters as racist and stupid. Which, you know, I thought I thought was a a bit disappointing because in fact the story was fine. The story showed that she hadn't done it. But the headline suggested that that it was still a matter of some some contest, that that she's now merely denying it. It was really almost like running the headline again, running the allegation again. So, you know, there, there was a there was a great deal of caution being shown by media not to be not to be sort of too harsh on on the no camp, no matter what the no camp said. And I thought that was pretty pretty average. It's only one instance, but you know, many people made the observation at the time that the furor that blew up around this whole issue showed that it was it was more of a heinous act to be talking about racism than to be actually doing racism. And uh, I think that was a fair criticism that, you know, there was far more criticism of Langton than there was necessarily of the substance of her observations.
0: And look, it is interesting that, you know, when you hear those words that she said, it's very clear that they were distorted by the original piece published in The Australian, and you've made a point about the, the headline the City Morning Herald used, but I also note that The Guardian's headline, Marcia Lenten denies criticising no voters and said media is targeting her. Again, it's, it's, it is it's still pushing the, that same message that was implicit in the City Morning Herald's headline. I, I'm wondering if if the media here are, are guilty of just searching for clicks, because both headlines mm. are quite a, a very keep keep in a sense keep the story going when really the message here is that there was no story to begin with.
1: Yeah, and I think it's probably a, a fair observation, actually. Um we know that that's the way headlines are written these days, particularly for online, that they're designed to entice readers to make people click on them. That's how they drive eyeballs to their stories and eyeballs to stories drives advertising revenue as well. So there's, there's that very strong temptation. And I have some sympathy for for newspapers and news media generally, having worked in it for years and having great affection for, particularly for the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age, where I worked. I, I, I still regard them as outstanding papers, but, you know, they can get them wrong. And I think in that, in that instance, that was for, for, as a headline on the front page. It was a sort of a strip down the left-hand side of the front page I I thought it was a bit disappointing because it was a chance to say, well, actually, the original story in the rival paper, The Australian, was a beat-up, and here's here's how, right? And so the headline could have easily been Langdon didn't slur no voters as racist and stupid. That could have been the headline, and it would have been, in my view, a better headline and a more accurate one. But it's just one instance of, of, of many through the campaign. I... I mean, for I'll give you an example in a broadcast example that I just noticed constantly through the campaign, and that was the tendency to populate stories, current affairs, and news stories with Aboriginal people who were voting no. Now, these people had statistically a relatively small slice of the Aboriginal vote, but they had a disproportionately large influence on the way the discussion happened in the through the campaign and the lead up to actual polling day and voters would have quite understandably formed a view that the aboriginal community was split down the middle on this question of the voice that uh, there there were virtually as many against it as there were for it that therefore this licensed them to think that the no campaign criticism that the yes case was being run by inner city elites privileged Aboriginal leaders who were quite wealthy and well-educated and, and who weren't themselves in touch with the realities of, of life on the ground in Aboriginal communities, uh, has allowed this this whole myth to to be propagated. And and yet, what we see from polling information in a seat like Lingiari, which takes up a substantial portion of the Northern Territory and has a lot of Aboriginal voters in it, we see that in those booths where there was a Heavy uh, and and the portable booze and and booze where there was a um, heavy uh, um, dominance of First Nations people voting that the support for the voice was very very strong indeed much more like eighty percent which was the original claim of the yes case eighty percent support for yes amongst Aboriginal Australians well that seems to be about right um, and yet if you listen to broadcast media you, you you did get this impression that you were constantly hearing from from no it's often people who didn't really know much about what they were talking about, but they brought the credibility of being First Nations person who thought the voice would do them, would either not work or would do them some sort of material disadvantage, some sort of material harm. They're pretty corrosive stuff.
0: Well, finally, uh, what were the lessons from the referendum that the media should be learning before the next federal election?
1: Well, I think it, it, it's really just summing up what we've just been discussing. It's to, it's to be a lot more focused on the value proposition that is being put forward and on the nature of the debate what we've seen from i mean let's flip it around the other way if you've got a, a, a think about the us if you're trying to enforce 50% representation of trump forces and 50% representation of say biden forces in a particular debate and trump is speaking lies do you treat those lies as if they are true even though you know they are not do you allow them to be constantly broadcast in the same stories as, 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 the, as the truth or do you actually point them out as being historically inaccurate, as, as being factually untrue, of having no evidentiary base? American media, I think, are ahead of Australian media on this question and they are alive to these sorts of problems. They have a responsibility to the truth, not just to the institutional competition itself and i think that is something that australian media are going to have to take out of this they're going to have to have a look at the way they made those decisions and the way in which they were effectively being gamed by the no campaign a very effective no campaign with you know with advance australia for example you know operating extremely effectively for the resources that it had australian media need to be alive to that because in the end, we've had, a, I think, a big disservice done to this country.
0: Mark Kenny, thanks for being on 4 for State. It's been a great pleasure. Thanks, Anthony. And thanks for listening to the program. This edition was recorded at the studios of TIRUCR and heard across the country on the Community Radio Network. 4 for State is produced with the assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Thanks to the foundation for its continuing support. Make sure you subscribe to 4 Estate on your favourite podcast app so you can hear us talk about the media, politics and a lot in between. We'll be back with more next week. But in the meantime, you can stay in touch with us on Twitter. Our handle is 4 AU, and you can also find us on threads. I'm Anthony Dockwell. Thanks for listening.